I still have a British accent. Yeah. Very much so. You do. And you've been here for a while But I do say eggplant, though. Eggplant. No, it's aubergine. And I do say tomato. And I do say vitamins. But do you see how it so smoothly and seamlessly comes out amongst a British accent? No, it doesn't. You wouldn't even be able to notice. And I do say process as well. And schedule. Okay. Okay. I thought we were friends. (laughs) This is hard. This is hard. Okay. Hello and welcome again to Are You Sitting Uncomfortably with me, Gemma Greaves. This is the podcast that features courageous storytellers who are comfortable with getting uncomfortable. In my prickly chair this time is Jatinda Sedev. Jay, as affectionately known by his friends and family, is quite simply impeccable. From his beautifully tailored suits to his perfectly honed accent, He is someone that you cannot fail to notice in a busy crowd. Best-selling author of The Kim Kardashian Principle and world-renowned speaker, Jay keeps himself busy between his homes in LA and here in the UK. His role as a UN human rights ambassador is something to be admired and one I'm really keen to discuss today. Oh, and did I mention his fabulous cheekbones? He certainly has a story. Let's begin. Welcome, Jay. That is really lovely. Thank you so much indeed. I was not expecting that, Gemma. Thank you. Thank you. It's amazing to have you here. Are you sitting uncomfortably? Am I sitting uncomfortably? No, because I don't want to sit uncomfortably. I want to be comfortable wherever I am. I don't want to be depressed. I don't want to be sad. I don't want to live in fear. And and I believe that we need to be in control of our own environment. So the answer to that is no, I'm not sitting uncomfortably. I'm sitting very comfortably. Thank you. Is the cactus not making you feel a tiny bit uncomfortable? Not at all. No, no. And especially after that introduction, how could somebody not... Well, actually, some people could feel uncomfortable, couldn't they, after that introduction? I actually felt very comfortable. Thank you. Again. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, it's my job to get you a bit uncomfortable in the next hour or so. Okay, let's do it, let's do it. <laughs> I would like you to take me back. Where did Jatinda's journey begin? Well, I was born in a city called Bristol in England at St. Michael's Hill Hospital. And then I was raised in Bristol. I did my first couple of degrees in the UK and then I moved to the US and then that's that. So there we have it. (laughs) (laughs) How exciting was that, Gemma? That was amazing. So you've come from a very happy home and childhood. Yeah, yeah. I I had two elder sisters. Unfortunately, one passed away very recently from stage four breast cancer. Please, everybody out there, get your screening and know how to test yourself. So that's kind of been difficult. But yeah, I I mean, overall, a really happy upbringing at home. My parents, incredibly loving, incredibly supportive. And my sisters too, who are both older than me. I was the youngest and the only boy in the family. So you can only imagine just what I would be able to get away with. (laughs) I can imagine. I can imagine. I'm sorry to hear about your sister. Thank you. So where did you go to school? 
My first school was called Amberley House School, which I was at until the age of 11. And it was a beautiful collegiate sort of nurturing prep school. And I remember we had sort of like our, it was very British, you know, it was a house essentially. And we had our indoor shoes and our outdoor shoes and and everything else like that. And we had our caps and our shorts and, and all of that kind of stuff. And then after that, I went to a all boys school that I had to go to six days a week called Colston's. And that was when you were how old? So 11 onwards. So 11 that was senior onwards. school, essentially. Yeah. yeah. And, and tell, tell me about that experience in that school. What, senior school? Yes, senior well, school. Well, actually, I wanted to, actually, firstly, at, at my junior school, it was really great because I made loads of friends and I was, um, I was pretty popular. I was a lead choir boy, believe it or not, at our large annual Christmas ceremony stuff. It was um, a lot of fun. When I moved to the senior school, it was sort of like a Monday to Saturday sports school in the UK. And it was really not the right environment for me. And I really struggled. Um, I was bullied significantly throughout that entire time. I don't remember one day that I wasn't bullied. And I actually don't remember one day that I wasn't genuinely uncomfortable. It was it was a really, it was a disastrous experience, I think that affected my academics although I still sort of sort of pushed through it all but it was a really difficult time for me yeah and that lasted for a long time (laughs) why do you think you were bullied and what happened well you know I mean lots of reasons I mean it was a very you know I didn't conform to the behavioral stereotype there I had come from a very sort of collegiate nurturing environment and it was a very sort of rugby oriented macho oriented you know kind of environment I wasn't especially athletic when it came to sports like rugby and hockey. I had more of an interest in sports like tennis and even badminton. So, you know, it was just a complete it was a complete clash on every front. And although I wanted to fit in and although I didn't see myself as being um, different in retrospect, I can see why I wasn't accepted and why I was actually singled out. I hate bullies. I really do. Yeah, I think at that time, it's sort of, you know, I remember this, you know, this sense of my stomach turning every time I went into school and, um, you know, just walking into the school gates and being told that it was actually a privilege to be at that school and not everybody could actually be at that school, but then really not feeling that in any way and just wanting to be anywhere else, but was um was definitely a feeling that um I remember very distinctly. And did you try to fit in? Yeah, I think every kid tries to fit in and yeah, I wanted to be liked, I wanted to be also a popular person, you know, I wanted to have lots of friends. But the reality of the situation was that I was very much disliked and I very much did not fit in. And I think the impact of that was me being forced to own my uniqueness, you know, and own my difference and start to get really comfortable with that. So in one way, I really appreciate the bullies. I appreciate being demeaned and degraded every day for so many years because It taught me to be stronger and it taught me to own who I was and what I stood for. Absolutely. And be unapologetically you. Yeah, definitely. You know, there was always an element to me. I was sort of from a younger age, I was quite sort of outspoken and outgoing. So I definitely wasn't a timid type of person. So it just sort of exacerbated that in me. You know, I had a point of view and um, 
and it made it even stronger. And you didn't conform. No, absolutely. Absolutely not. And, you know, honestly, that was a large impetus, I think, just a feeling it became part of my DNA because it was with me from the age of 11 onwards. And that was part of the reason why I wrote my book, The Kim Kardashian Principle, was to allow people to champion who they were, you know, to do what they wanted to do, to live their lives on their terms, in their own ways. And to um and to feel free, and also um, not expecting the environment to dictate how you feel. You feeling comfortable and you feeling connected at every stage of the process, which is why I'm very comfortable here right now talking to you about very uncomfortable things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now I love that, and I love when I read your book, particularly you know, be yourself and then amp it up. Yeah, absolutely. Amp it up. And that's why I use Kim Kardashian as sort of like, you know, a, a example of what I was talking about, how according to these Hollywood norms of what beauty refer were about, you know, you had to be blonde, you had to be a certain body shape, you know, you had to have a certain eye color. And she came along with her Armenian heritage. And, you know, you have to live and work in Hollywood, as I have for so many years, to understand just how revolutionary that was for a brunette from Armenia and believe it Armenians are not on the Hollywood hot list as many many other you know ethnicities and races are not in Hollywood still unfortunately and to really bust through that mold and redefine what it meant to be a sex symbol I found that very inspiring and I found those concepts applicable to lots of different environments whether that's for a corporate marketer who's building a brand all the way through to you know a child who's at school and is being told every day that they need to be anything but themselves and embrace your flaws. You know, I genuinely believe that flaws are what make you fascinating. You know, it's your vulnerability today that connects with audiences. You know, it's the fact that we are not perfect. And I think, you know, brands and even people who project images of perfections today are highly distrusted. Maybe years ago, we would believe a brand that said that, you know what, buy the gold card or buy the platinum card and your life will be perfect. But try selling a message like that to a Gen Zer today and and they're not going to buy it because they've seen their parents do that, right? They've seen their parents work hard and believe in a dream, achieve it. And now their parents are no longer together. And, you know, they see their parents are no longer as happy as they were promised that they would be. So I think what's really inspiring about younger generations today is that they are willing to march to their own drumbeats. They don't have to go to Oxford like I felt I had to. They don't have to go to Harvard like to a degree I felt I had to. I wouldn't change what I did. But at the same time, at that stage, I was making decisions based on what society or what strangers thought of me, because I actually thought they really cared. Yeah. <laughs> and then you realize after a while that actually everybody has their own crap to deal with and nobody really cares. And you have to do you on your terms and live your life. But I agree. It's definitely changed in terms of, you know, when I went to uni, it wasn't even a choice. It was... It was that was the natural progression. That's what your parents expected of you. That's what society expected of you. It wasn't a thing of, oh, let's go out and work. It was, well, the next step, finish my A-levels, it's now uni. Whereas now it feels that's changed vastly for young people. I'm sounding old, aren't I? Yeah, no, I mean, it's really inspiring. I'm inspired by, you know, younger generations. I'm inspired by, by, by my own, you know, peer group to a degree that are willing to say, you know what, no. Yeah, I'm a straight A student, but I don't want to go to Oxford. What I actually want to do is play video games, film myself, put it up on YouTube and become the next Pudapai. 
Sure. I remember um, <laughs> I was, just to say that, I remember I was speaking about these concepts um, in um, in Kiev, in Ukraine, a few years ago, obviously, before the, before the awful political situation there. And I remember one person in the audience, the question that came from the audience, one person asked me, they were like, you know, would you want your child to be like Kim Kardashian? And I said, I would absolutely 100% want my child to be like Kim Kardashian. I don't want her, I don't want my child to be afraid of me. I don't want my child to be afraid of you. I don't want them to be afraid of anyone. I want them to be utterly fearless. And I want to live there. I want them to feel free to live their life on their terms, in their own way. I absolutely love that. You know? I really love that. And isn't that that what every parent parent, wants for their child? Yes, yes, yes. But as you get older, society changes that. So I think, you know, it's it's that imagination that a child has that we need to keep alive. We need to keep alive. We need to keep it alive. And I think we all have that. And we have, you know, we have the front part of our brain that probably gets conditioned to a degree by society. And then we have the back part of our brain. Mm. And um, and I think that, you know, the back part of the brain really is the intuitive part. And we have to listen to that. And that's where we're then able to take risks. You know, I remember at Harvard Business School, it was always about kind of risk management. You know, how do you make decisions? You make them based on minimizing risks, maximizing reward. But then when I moved to Hollywood, I realized that actually sometimes you just make decisions based on your intuition and your gut feeling and you just go for it, you know, and that's where you can really bust through and create true change and have true social impact and um, be worshipped and adored. Be you, be unapologetically you, be in the power of you. You If you're going to wait for permission for others... You're going to be waiting for a long time. If I listened to my teachers at school as to what I could be, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. No. You know, the whole reason I get to do what I love to do today, and it's a multitude of different things, as you know, Gemma, is because I really didn't listen. You know, I believed in what I could do, regardless of what people around me were telling me in quite a convincing fashion, actually. Yeah. And you dreamed of of going to Hollywood and you achieved it. I did, yes. So can you think of a moment, a time, can you pinpoint a moment that made you feel uncomfortable? Well, my school, my, I mean, I mean, bullied at school for so long made me feel incredibly uncomfortable. But I do also remember when I was then working um, quite quickly after graduating from business school, I was working in a ad agency and I got, I got promoted quite quickly and I, I got into senior position quite quickly. I remember at one stage that same feeling of my stomach turning, returning as I walked into the offices. And I was like, oh, wow, I haven't felt this for so long. There is something wrong here, which is when I decided, you know what, I'm actually going to quit. I'm out of here. This is not right for me. So that was the time where I once again listened to um, my gut and I didn't hang around. And How did it make you feel when you realised that whatever you did in that role, it didn't work. I was reminded once again every day, like I was at school, you know, in that particular role, I was reminded every day that I was just not good enough. Like anything that I could do was not good enough, regardless of the fact that I probably had more credentials than anyone at that organization, regardless of the fact that the business impact that I was having on the organization was significant. There were so many other problems that just carried on turning up that I felt were very personal to me. And, you know, and I think 
you know, it's tricky because I come from a standpoint that, you know, you have to find environments that work for you. You shouldn't necessarily conform to the environment because then you're not at your optimum. You know, you have to be mm. in an environment where you can bring your entire self, which is where you're then um, up to your optimal best. But whenever anyone tells you that you're not good enough, I think that is your immediate cue to recognize that you are more than enough and you are better you are capable and you are able um, and you must never wait for anybody else to tell you that because guess what you're going to be waiting a long time and what I really like is you removed yourself from that situation yeah it wasn't right for you yeah that feeling that triggered the childhood memories yes took you back that feeling of not being good enough yeah absolutely yeah so I was just like nope I know exactly where I am on the Richter scale and guess what? I am off the charts. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> I remember seeing on Insta that fabulously tailored red suit. Was it Gucci? So yes, I was. That's right. So that it was a Gucci suit. It um, was originally designed by Tom Ford when Tom Ford was at Gucci, and when MTV invited me to walk onto the red carpet. Um, which I had done, I think, for the second or third year running. I'm not sure now. Um, I remember in the previous years, I had worn other designers like Dolce & Gabbana. Um, and I had, obviously, because of these beautiful tailored suits, I had made the best dress list. And I of think course. this time around, of course, hello. That's why I'm wearing and heels today like, for you. <laughs> that's wearing heels for me, but I'm like, I'm really not dressed up today. But I think that this time around, you know, I think that when I started working in the media and when I started doing more TV work, when I started doing more modeling work, it was really important for me to be seen to be seen and to be heard. I think part of that was a fact that I genuinely had a fascination with fame and recognition and the culture of celebrity and Hollywood. But I think part of that was also because of my schooling and the fact that I was constantly suppressed. I was constantly made to feel that I was invisible or I was constantly silenced. And um, and then I sort of developed this adverse reaction to that. You know, I had a voice. I wanted to speak up. You know, I would look at suppressed minority groups and I would want to give them a voice. And I and I would look at everybody else who I thought was in one way or another silenced and I would want to say, you know what, no, speak up. You don't have to hide. Um, so I think it really very much came from that. So when, when at the MTV EMAs, when I walked the carpet, I decided that on the back of this beautiful Gucci suit, I was going to wear, I was going to put the words to the prime minister of Hungary at that stage, because the MTVs were being held in Budapest in Hungary. And the prime minister's name is Viktor Orban. Um, who had just passed some anti-equality legislation and there was a massive uproar um, within the country. MTV was thinking of pulling out of the event. And I just put on the back of my jacket, you know, Auburn, love wins. And then before I took it out, I was like, wait a second, should I just say love wins? Because it's very direct. It's a direct message to the Prime Minister of Hungary. And I don't necessarily want to be the, that direct. I, I don't think I should be that direct. But then I was like, wait a second, those are the first words that came to me 
actually, I do want to be that, that direct. And I remember it being so funny to me because Maluma was on the red carpet, Rita Ora was, Ed Sheeran was, and I think many of the headlines for that entire evening in the media became about me yeah. and my jacket, <laughs> <laughs> which was brilliant. So that was number one. And that was very much, you know, what I wanted to do was to get the word out. But number two, what was so impactful for me was just the hundreds of messages and emails I got from the people of Hungary after going, thank you so much. We will always be with you. We will support you. Thank you for being our voices. They they were truly, they truly felt suppressed. They truly felt that they couldn't say that themselves. And that to me is absolutely wrong. It's utterly wrong. People should feel free to be able to say what they want to say and live their lives on their terms. And also accept the repercussions for that. Um, so now I think at one stage, when I think back to why I moved out to Hollywood, I think at one stage, popularity was very important to me. I wanted to regain the popularity that I was due at school. But now I don't, I have no, I, I don't want to be popular now. I want to be free. So now I'm on my new journey of trying to find my freedom. And push boundaries and drive change. Yeah, I mean, it's a very personal journey for me. You know, I don't wake up every morning and think, okay, how can I push boundaries? How can I drive change? I just that would wake be up, weird. That, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Cup actually. of tea, let's weird. push a boundary. <laughs> yeah, so it, I don't, I suppose that just naturally what I'm drawn towards and the ideas that I'm drawn towards and what I like to write about, you know, I see my work as a form of art in that way, you know, and, um, and it just happens to, a lot of people just happen to think it provokes thought. Yeah, and know? it does, and it does. And it will make a lot of people uncomfortable as well. Yeah, and I think that if, if it makes somebody uncomfortable, I mean, that's on them. But I actually, I write for me to express myself and to work through my issues and to further empower myself and people who think like me. I've never, you know, I, I wrote in my book, I remember I said that, look, I, I don't have an interest in changing the way you think or telling you how to think. What I have an interest in doing is expressing myself, provoking thought. And I think that's probably from my Oxford days, you know, yeah. that's the sort of tutorial based way of learning, you know, to question, to challenge, to think of the other schools of thoughts. And then you land wherever you want to land and you, um, you know, you deal with the benefits and the consequences of that. And uh, stand out and make an impression. You certainly did that to Prime Minister Orban, right? Yeah, definitely. Well, yeah, I, I think that I, I absolutely did. So um, that's, a, that's a tick mark for me. I remember that. Definitely. For a while. Did, was there any acknowledgement from himself? I'm assuming not. Not from, not from, not from Prime Minister Orban, no. But um, the media had a whole range of different articles that came out saying that I had been conspiring with the opposition parties on this for the past six months. I had been doing ABC and really I hadn't been. I just sort of, it came to me a week before because I just didn't want to stand there and make another best rest list. It feels to me, it strikes me from this conversation and obviously, you know, known you for many years, that actually, as much as you say you like to be comfortable, your comfortable is many people's uncomfortable. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> I, I, I would agree. I actually think that that's hit the nail on the head. Yeah, I think that my comfortable is many people's uncomfortable. And 
it might well be my uncomfortable too. I mean, who knows, which is what drives me. I mean, I know for a fact that my uncomfortability lies when I become bored and when I get used to something and when I don't feel like I'm pushing myself and I'm not expanding my mind and I'm not trying new things. You know, I remember I was telling somebody very close to me who was just going to university, the advice that um, I gave them was that, you know what, I want you to go to university and I want you to try everything at least twice. And you mean everything, don't you? I mean, when I mean everything, I mean everything. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Everything. Because I don't want that person to be afraid of me or to be afraid of anyone else or I want them to decide for themselves who they are, where their comfort zones lie, where their own boundaries lie. I don't want them to just jump into a box and say, okay, this is who I am and these are my comfort zones and this is how I was meant to live my life. So one thing I've, I've noticed that you do, you use your platform brilliantly to tell stories, to provoke thought your role as um, a human rights ambassador with the the UN. Tell us about that and and particularly the uncomfortable truths around modern slavery. Yeah, I would love to talk about this. It's a massive passion. And still, people do not know that modern slavery exists. When I started building up my platform and people were listening to what I had to say, I really started thinking, I was like, my goodness, you know, like, yes, I work a lot within the realm of celebrity and I'm trying to empower people. I'm trying to use my platform for good. I'm trying to use my recognition, my level of fame, my level of celebrity, whatever you want to call it, for good. But I really wanted to champion behind a social cause. And then I was introduced to this amazing philanthropist, um, Raza Jafar, who by one way or another was talking about modern slavery and how he had a passion for tackling this issue. And at that stage, I didn't even know what it was. I then ended up going to the United Nations, where I learned that modern slavery is the largest, most profitable business in the world. It generates over $150 billion in profits a year. And that's an underestimation. Gosh, that's disturbing. It's disturbing. It is a business. There are over 40 million people currently in slavery. Every country is affected. I could not believe that this was happening. It's not just in developing countries. It is in developed countries as well. It is happening in England as we speak. When we talk about modern slavery, a lot of people don't even know what it is. Forced labor. When you go and wash your car for five pounds, guess what? The people there probably have their passports confiscated who are working there and probably cannot go anywhere else and are not getting minimum wage. You know, you also, of course, get sex trafficking that we've also heard of. You get organ trafficking, you know, when you go to these glitzy hospitals in all sorts of different countries and you can get your heart transplants straight away without being on waiting lists. Where is that coming from? We have to question that. So this is what we define as modern slavery. I mean, just even having it as a business, sorry, I just want to pick up on this. Even calling it a business, not let alone the largest business. Yeah, it's the the largest, most profitable business in the world. And it's the fastest growing business in the world still. And a lot of people don't know that modern slavery exists. So we still have an awareness issue here. Modern slavery exists. 
you might have met somebody who is enslaved and you might not be aware of it. So, you know, keep your eye out for those sorts of factors. You know, is this person unkempt? Are they being escorted to and from work? You know, what are their living conditions like? All those sorts of things. But, you know, I mean, once I understood that this was actually the situation, I was fascinated. I started working very closely with the UN. I met with the president, the UN General Assembly, Peter Thompson. I then flew to Malta, met with the president of Malta, Marie-Louise Cielo, the Archbishop of Canterbury. I've been to the Lambeth Palace multiple times. I've been invited to the Vatican over four times by Pope Francis and um, Monsignor Marcelo Sanchez Sorondo. And what I've learned is just horrifying. But I will tell you the one thing that sticks with me the most. When I was at the UN headquarters in New York, I met Carla Jacinto, who was a survivor of human trafficking. Carla has been raped over 43,200 times in estimation. Um, (sighs) And it was just absolutely heartbreaking to hear her story. And she's probably 30 now. And what she said was, you know, it is not the actions of the bad people that affect me. It is the indifference of the good people. So please, everybody listening to this, clue yourself up on modern slavery, educate yourself on modern slavery, talk to your friends about modern slavery, tell them that it actually exists. When you're buying a product, make sure you're supporting fair trade, make sure the brands that you're using, and many of them have been under fire, you know, of relatively recent, whether it's Nike, whether it's H&M, whether it's Nestle, Look to see what anti-modern slavery practices they have in place. Look to see whether they have clear, transparent supply chains, which obviously don't ensure that there's no modern slavery occurring, but certainly they have taken a level of responsibility and then buy your products from them. Great, great advice. And I really hope that our listeners, I certainly will. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I certainly do that. Never buy a counterfeit product. It's going to be made by a 11-year-old whose legs might well be stapled. Stapled and nailed to benches in in these sort of warehouses that they work from. So, you know, a lot of people don't realize that that's actually what they're supporting. And it's actually horrifying what you're supporting. There are the most horrific things that are happening behind the scenes. So instead of doing that, buy from legit sources and spend your energy on trying to free yourself from these societal constraints. So going back to Carla, Carla, what you said about the indifference of good people just really struck me there. Yeah. Um, She said it is not the actions of the bad people after being through that horrific ordeal. And it's really complicated, too, actually. Her her captivator was actually, you know, oftentimes they're in love with their captivators. It's a complicated situation. But after being through the horrific ordeal, and she's a survivor, incredibly strong woman, incredibly inspiring. So if you're a good person out there listening, don't be indifferent. So indifferent in terms of walking by, not yeah, doing anything. Yeah, not paying not attention, changing. not making an effort to educate yourself, not looking um, at brands and how they actually supply, you know, supply products and services and just looking for maybe, you know, like, well, just either being ignorant or looking for the cheapest deal. 
What change do you think could make the biggest difference? Is that the change? Yeah, I think that's exactly it. I think you could do a variety of different things. You know, there are lots of, there's a global slavery index. There are lots of um, charities that work on modern slavery. There are lots of signs. I think we've spoken about some of them. Even if you just educate yourself on modern slavery, Google it now, speak to other people. The major awareness, the major issue at the moment for modern slavery is awareness. A lot of people just don't know it's happening and it might be happening next door to them. You know, please educate yourself. And then secondly, please have a conversation about it over dinner with someone else. But, you know, we need the masses on it too. We do. You're all important in your own way. And another thing, you've been prolific in your career, being an authority for brands. And you've been quite outspoken, which I love. So why do you think it's important for brands to get uncomfortable? Well, I think, I mean, apart from the fact that it's the right thing to do, I think, you know, if you're a brand being bottom line, they need to embrace change. They need to keep up with change. I mean, look at what happened with Abercrombie & Fitch. Look what happened with Victoria's Secret. You know, I remember um, that Ashley Lutz from Business Insider reached out to me and asked me to speak about Victoria's Secret for the first time. And I said that, look, I actually think that way back then, they were doing an awful job of staying relevant with their size zero, size minus models. You know, it was the least inclusive. They were refusing to represent diversity in any way. They were refusing to represent plus size models. Even when they started representing plus size models, it was still baby steps. They weren't producing the product for plus size models. And it was kind of a bit pointless. So, you know, I think that that's what brands need to do. Don't be a Victoria's Secret, you know, stay relevant. Embrace change, celebrate change, be inclusive. That's where the world is going. If you haven't already seen it, look at your board. If your board looks homogenous, guess what? I'm probably not going to be buying your product. And lots of other people are going to be aware of that. How are you getting those insights? How are you getting those differing thoughts? You know, how are you creating an environment that actually is not going to throw out the outsider, but recognize that the outsider is going to be more difficult to deal with, but it's a necessary insight and it's a necessary conversation that has to be had in order to instigate change, in order to remain profitable in order to do exciting, important things. And brands have the biggest platform because as marketeers, the role is to be the voice of the customer. Yeah, absolutely. You know, for the up and coming marketers out there, really, this is your responsibility. I think more so than those that are ingrained, don't abide by your boss's rules. Bring these new insights, you know, and 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 sometimes when I see the young marketers who are just trying to kind of slot in, I'm like, no, you're going to be the ones who actually are challenging the status quo. I mean, I'm not going to be young and beautiful for forever, Gemma. You know? <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, we need, we need the, oh, yeah, actually, that's a good point. Aren't that you 375? <laughs> <laughs> But I couldn't agree more. And, and, you know, my previous life, as you know, it was all about championing marketers to be braver, to stand outside their comfort zones, to go against the status quo and use their platform. Because I don't believe it's just an opportunity. I think it's a responsibility that marketers have. And I do think that we have a lot of listeners that are marketers. So I reckon you're going to get a few calls. But that's where the CMO responsibility is to create that space, to create that culture and that psychological safety. So 
people in their team feel they can take part and contribute and go against the grain and say things that may not be the most popular things, but actually are the things that are going to change the dial. Yes, absolutely. I think a lot of marketeers, a lot of people in business often feel they can't for fear of what might happen. And my attitude is feel the fear and, and do it anyway. Feel the fear and do it anyway. And also, you know, guys, in the PR agencies in particular, you know, look at how much diversity you have there and don't just become blind to it and make conscious efforts. You know, I'm still so horrified. I mean, I have to put a pat on the back to the entertainment industries in the US and the marketing industries and Hollywood and stuff where I would go on set for ABC or, you know, CBS or wherever it may be. And it would be very rare that you would see a whole range of people of the same age range, of the same ethnicity, that still exists in the UK. It's getting better. You know, it's getting, well, It well, I think there are efforts to it, but still, when you go to some major marketing conferences here. Not the one I used to run. No, not the one you used to run. <laughs> that was very I, diverse. No, but I think we know some other major marketing yes. conferences where even every single speaker. Yes, that was my right? pet hate. And I was Try like, harder. oh, wow. Like, you know, I think when I initially started spending more time in the UK, to me, that really pushed me out of my comfort yeah. zone. There you have it. That made me feel uncomfortable. Yeah, it makes me feel a uncomfortable. A few people too. got slaps because guess what? I had a voice too. And all of what you do, you do in such a polite, distinguished manner, but you make a point and you make it count. And that's really important. But what if I don't want to be nice? What if I want to be a bleep? Yeah, I don't mean nice so much. You know, I mean... You know, you do it in a fierce nice. way, but in a kind. Wants to be nice. This has been <laughs> such a fascinating conversation. Um, I hope so. Oh, it's 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 been a fascinating conversation. So I just like all to very serious finish. Again. Go, yes, please go ahead, I, I am go. quite serious, and I just like to finish on. What do you think we can learn from getting uncomfortable? Why is it important to get uncomfortable? It's important to get uncomfortable. It's important to live in an uncomfort zone because it's what's going to make you feel alive. It's what's going to make you feel very connected to the world and to the environment. And it's what's going to be able to let you live with absolutely no regrets. Thank you so much, Jay. This has been wonderful and it's been a pleasure to have you in our prickly chair. Thank you. An honour. Thank you, Gemma. Thank you. I'm Gemma Greaves and Are You Sitting Uncomfortably is a Fresh Air production and the producers are the lovely Izzy Clark and Clara Kavanagh. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please do me a humongous favour and follow us, recommend us, like us. If you're feeling really kind, leave a review. The bigger the following, the more opportunity to have the best guests like Jay. And I want to continue to have these uncomfortable conversations feels like the only way forward. Thanks so much.